Area 2000. This program introduces our listeners to the scientific approach to discussion of two particular subjects, UFOs and near-death and after-death experiences. To contact the Bigelow Foundation during the work week, call Angela Thompson between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. at area code 702-456-1606. That's Angela Thompson at area code 702-456-1606. And now, Area 2000. On Halloween. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Area 2000. I'm Art Bell. Uh, this week, George Knapp is traveling someplace or another and will not be with us. We'll catch up with George Knapp last week. Of course, we had two full hours of George last week. And by the way, that was a very, very popular program. An awful lot of people have called me about that uh, particular program, and we'll have George back on again. But this week, he's traveling. However, with a glimpse into another reality, we do have with us uh, from, I'm guessing, the San Francisco Bay Area this evening, Linda Howe. And so let us begin with Linda, and good evening, Linda. Hi, yes, Art, I am in San Francisco. Um, I have been uh, one of the speakers at a conference here this weekend, and with me is a colleague, Michael Lindemann, who is head of the 2020 group in California, a futurist who is interested in the, the various trends sociologically, politically, and economically of the future, and one of the subjects that he thinks plays an important role in what may be coming is the implication of the UFO phenomenon. And I thought it would be interesting tonight to discuss with him a question that all of us are provoked by, and that is, why would the government of the United States have a policy of silence about the UFO, UFO phenomenon for at least 50 years? if the alleged uh, testimonies of people in military and government are true, that we have been essentially covering up crash disks and alien bodies since the 1940s. So I would like to introduce Michael Lindemann, who has a background in theology and in psychology, and who is now uh, working on future trends to discuss this issue of a uh, policy of silence, and here is Michael Lindemann. All right. Thank you, Linda. Hello, this is Michael Lindemann. Michael, good evening. I'm Art Bell, and this is a program called Area 2000. Uh, you're with a group called the 2020, was it a foundation? 2020 group is a private research organization, Art, uh, and basically we're studying forces that shape the future. And that includes a wide variety of forces, but um, as, a, as a futurist over the last four years, I've looked a great deal at the UFO controversy and have come to the conclusion that uh, it is perhaps uh, one of the largest and certainly one of the least recognized forces that will impinge upon our future, that is causing the human future to evolve in an unexpected direction. Wow, that's quite a conclusion. Uh, no, I'm pretty firm on that. <laughs> um, what do you, okay, uh, what do you base that on? Well, uh, I, I base that on a great many things, Art, but if we go back to uh, the question that, uh, that Linda posed, uh, I think that what we see in the ongoing policy of government secrecy is a premonition that the reality of an alien presence uh, on planet Earth would have profound and largely unpredictable social consequences. Uh, I think it's the uh, recognition of that likelihood, which is probably something they've thought about since at least the early 50s, if not earlier than that, 
that probably provokes uh, the secrecy to this day. And what they're seeing today is that they can no longer contain the secret in the way they used to. Uh, the the, the, the so-called UFO cover-up has actually evolved through several stages. And today we see basically that the containment policy of secrecy is completely breached. It's not working at all anymore. So instead we have um, a kind of a nuanced uh, quasi-disclosure policy, which is actually very far from telling the truth. But it's a holding action. It's a, it, You might say it's a damage control operation today. Um. Uh, where do you see quasi-disclosure? That was the term you used. Where, Where is there that? In programs like mine, I'm speaking now of the government. Well, uh, no, I don't, yeah, I don't think your, uh, no, your program, I'm sure, is an effort to, you know, to bring forward good, strong information uh, as credibly as possible. Um, well, yes, but we are part of the disclosure... The disclosure apparatus. Ab absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so one of the things that comes up, and I think it's something that troubles many good, solid... Uh, uh, ufologists, uh, Linda Howe and I have discussed this. I've discussed it with other colleagues as well. Is are, are, are we giving comfort to the enemy, in effect? Are we doing what they want us to do anyway? And in a certain sense, we may be. Because in a certain sense, we're, we're creating a, uh, a kind of a, a pillow for the general public to fall into. This is very alarming stuff we talk about here. Uh, it, it certainly is. So then when you say quasi-disclosure... Uh, what exactly do you mean? Uh, who is disclosing some anything officially? Well, um, it's very difficult to be certain of that, but it, it, I, I consider it a matter of, of rather considerable curiosity, for example, that after 31 years of dead silence, suddenly a great many Roswell people were willing to talk. I'm not saying there's any conspiracy around that, but it's very interesting to me. No, it is true, and a lot more about Roswell is suddenly... Uh, coming forward. Right. And then there's the, the, the curious uh, disclosure of MJ-12. Now, MJ-12 came out of nowhere. Uh, no one has yet claimed a responsibility for it, and yet I would say the evidence is piling up that MJ-12 is actually a hoax, but it's a very important hoax, okay? I'm still open to the possibility that it's real, but frankly, it's about a 95% hoax there. And the idea that it would come forward in a way that is extremely difficult to penetrate that no one would claim would lay claim to it, and that despite the likelihood it's a hoax, it is so carefully constructed that it has all the appearance of a genuine document. That has a signature on it of disinformation, very high level. Hmm. Someone is trying to perpetrate a conversation in our culture about this material. Someone wants to nuance or spin the public understanding of this information. And I think MJ-12 is a very good example of that. Um, any other uh, current examples that you'd cite? In other words, the pathway being prepared, that, that sort of thing? Well, uh, it's unclear again where or whether there's a plan. But one thing's for sure. The amount of alien imagery in our culture is skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. uh, we see it in all different venues. We see it in the straight press. We see it on television, all kinds of specials, both fictional and documentary. We see it to an a mind-boggling degree in advertising. Um, there's a whole, in fact, a very strong undercurrent of abduction themes uh, in all kinds, everything from television sitcoms to advertising for all kinds of different products, whether you're talking about hamburgers, telephones, airplanes, or anything else, we're seeing these, this, this undercurrent of, of, of thematic material about abduction. This, to me, is absolutely extraordinary. I search my... I search my soul asking the question, is there any, is, is this really uh, a strong hook for selling 
you know, hamburgers or Hondas. And I say to myself, I don't know about that, but I do know this. Uh, today, uh, and this is something that I show every single time I give a public talk, I, I throw up on the screen a, a cartoon. It's a Ziggy cartoon, you know, that little kind of doughboy funny guy? Sure. Okay, Ziggy is driving along the street. It's after dark. There's a billboard. And on the billboard, there is a flying saucer, very clear, a line-drawn flying saucer. And under it, uh, a couple of lines come down that look like probably what you'd say a beam of light. And in the beam of light, five or six little stick figures kind of floating upwards, okay? Uh -huh. Well, that's a pretty clear symbol. You know what it means. <laughs> I know what it means. Underneath, it says three words. Next five miles. <laughs> now, now, check it out. I use that. I believe that that is a Rorschach test of our culture, okay? I believe that that is a symbolic test of a social experiment that has been wildly successful. You know why? Every single time I throw that up, I do it without a comment. I just put it on the screen. Well, of course, what happens is what you did. People crack up. And then I say to them, now check it out. Why do you get this joke? Why does this mean something? Well, because our culture has been, as you point out, inundated with this kind of material. Exactly. Now, what is the real consequence of this? The real consequence of it is that people have gotten so used to the idea that abduction is real that this extraordinarily bizarre abstraction in this cartoon doesn't phase them anymore. And that, to me, is a monumental event. What does the 2020 group do in trying to predict the future? Do you look at social trends? Um, what generally do you study whatever the subject would be ufos or anything else how do you approach trying to formulate what might be the future well of course i use a wide variety of sources um, i use uh, research that is conducted by other people i use news as it is reported in the straight press both television and print i use uh my own uh field work um and i uh, you know have to compare notes constantly with uh, the work of other people. It's, it, it really, futurism is an inexact science, mm -hmm. and we don't predict the future. What we do is we look at trends and try to determine their strength, try to determine their direction. And we say, if we understand this trend, can we, can we project its likely outcome? So then, uh, with regard to the UFOs and all of uh, what you've been describing so far this morning, you would, you would take this then to be a very strong trend? Very strong trend. Yes. Hmm. Um, do you draw any conclusions? In other words, is this preparatory work? And if so, do you draw any conclusions about when? No, I don't draw any conclusions about when. And I'll tell you why. Because as far as I can tell, there remains no political advantage at all to coming clean on this subject. I think that the uh, whole process is being pushed primarily by the alien intelligence, which remains utterly inscrutable. We have no idea what these guys are up to. We don't know who they are, where they're from, or what, they're, or what they want. But I do think that if there is an acceleration underway, and I have a sense there is, but I can't prove that, the acceleration is being driven entirely by the aliens. The human side has been foot-dragging as hard as ever. The problem is they're actually caught in a rock and hard place. And that is the fact that the aliens are here. And that's a big, huge political problem. But the hard place is that they've been lying about it for 45 years. Okay? Now, people are very tired of being reminded that the government's lying to them. It happens time and time again. I happen to think the lies that have been told about the UFO phenomenon do not 
by and large, represent bad people doing something bad. I think these people were scared. I think they did what they thought they had to do. I think they formed very hard decisions around very hard information. I think it really freaked them out. But I also think today they're stuck with the very nasty fallout of the problem. What do you think the, the logic was uh, as they sat around deciding that this information had to be kept from the public? What train of logic do you think they used in deciding that? Uh, I believe there are at least five or six different reasons which all are kind of interlocking. <clears throat> Reason number one certainly was that in 1947, if not sooner, in fact, probably during World War II, when they had the Foo Fighter phenomenon, which was very strong, and then the ghost rockets over Scandinavia and other places right after the war, mm -hmm. so especially in 1947, just after we had uh, invented the atomic bomb, we had Joseph Stalin on the scene, we had new, uh, new technologies that struck the radar and so forth, I mean, we had entered a new era, and suddenly we got flying saucers literally littering the sky, but also littering the ground outside Roswell, New Mexico, and other places, and suddenly we've got a very real question. Are we being invaded from space? Militarily speaking, that was absolutely the question of the day. Sure. And military was on high alert. So, first of all, okay, here's a problem. Just defeated the worst, you know, character in history. We just invented the atomic bomb. Don't Not on your life. <laughs> and we, if we've got aliens, is there anything we can do about them? Doesn't look like it. They're flying circles around everything we've got. Who are these guys? Where are they from? What do they want? Those three questions still bother us today, but they were really troubling back then. So that's problem number one. Have we got an invasion? Can't tell the people. What can we tell them? Yep, we're being invaded from space. Can't do a thing about it. Sorry. Very bad political problem there. Yeah, I suppose. Secondly, the second reason was that they thought that even if we didn't have to, uh, if even if we didn't have aliens in space, what we did have was we had a, a vast proliferation of stories of flying saucers, and they were really worried that it would cause public panic and pandemonium no matter what. And so the CIA by 1952 was recommending to President Eisenhower that they institute a policy, official policy of debunking. And the reason was not that they thought the aliens were actually a national security risk. In fact, by 1952, they had actually lowered their estimation of the risk involved in the aliens themselves because the aliens were not showing overt hostility. But they did think that public interest in the subject was a terrible problem. And so they actually said, we've got to get people to stop thinking about this. And how they did it was a, was a, uh, a combination of denial and ridicule. Now, the third reason for secrecy, without a doubt, was they really thought they might have a secret weapon on their hands here. Mm -hmm. Now, if you, for example, if, if some very deep inside group knew that we had recovered alien wreckage from Roswell, I happen to think we did, many others do too, so some inside group knows about this, and they're looking at an alien spacecraft, they're looking at alien technology on board, and they think to themselves, wait a minute, isn't this what we want? Don't we want the ultimate edge? Is this the ultimate edge? Have we got something here that no one else has got, no one else can get for a thousand years? Is this it? Is this the Pandora's box? And are we going to keep that secret? You bet your life we're going to keep that secret. Sure. So So I'm saying that there are a number of reasons. We could try it out a few more, but you get the picture? I do, um, and I want to talk to you about the public panic aspect of it. Now, with uh, what's been going on in modern society, people like you talking to people like our audience, um, has the public panic aspect of it, should there be um, a revelation about all this, has that changed? Would the public still panic? Is it uh, well, in your view, that they would be told or now, or should it be kept as deep and dark as ever? I think we have to 
try our best to be to become more open to this possibility. I think the real danger is sudden revelation of something totally unexpected. People don't handle that well, never have. All right, I ask just about every researcher this, and you sound like you'd be a good candidate. If you had incontrovertible evidence uh, that you could go on television and uh, trot out and suddenly it would all be open, out in the open, would you, would you, would you, would you do it? It would depend on the nature of the evidence. If the evidence were the kind that had the, had the overt appearance of something extremely hostile or extremely scary, I would be, I would have a lot of second thoughts about it, but I would want to move in the direction of revealing it as fast as possible. I would, knowing that I had the smoking gun in my hands, I would do everything in my power to bring people along fast to where they could actually grasp it at a later date. Now, if it were not very scary, very hostile kind of material, I would say, yes, let's bring it out. Hmm. I would. And I think that there has been enough change, enough evolution of human, human awareness that we could probably get away with it. But whenever it happens, it's risky. I don't see any time in the foreseeable future when it wouldn't be risky, but it becomes increasingly untenable to, to stall for more time. Risky for the American public, risky for the aliens, risky for our government that would be seen to be lying uh, for many years, or risky to all of them? Well, uh, I, I cannot speak at all for the, for the aliens' position, but I can speak to the idea that uh, the, the government that has tried so hard to keep this under wraps has always perceived grave political risk in saying anything really legitimate about this. I don't think those risks are substantially changed, although I think, as I said, with the containment of, of, of the secrecy absolutely breached, there, there's a lot of effort to bring people along. The risk is that people won't handle it well or that it will precipitate unpredictable changes. This confronts so many of our basic belief structures. We don't know what alien technology will do to our science. We just don't know. We certainly don't know what revelations of alien activity on this planet are going to do to our religious structures. And I have a feeling it's going to do something pretty horrendous. Not necessarily bad, but in the, lo but in the short run it's going to look like a lot of cherished belief systems are being assaulted by something, you know, uh, akin to... <laughs> well, that would produce violence. Could produce violence. Would produce violence. I'm convinced of it. I speak with people on this program every week and on related subjects on other programs. And I'm telling you right now, if Jesus Christ came back, somebody would fill him full of lead. Uh, people wouldn't already be thrown into an insane asylum. And uh, people just don't handle that kind of thing well, Michael. Uh, when you challenge their belief systems, the usual response is anger. I agree with you. I think that that right there, you put your finger on the risk. And that is why I say there is no time in the foreseeable future when we're going to be able to eliminate the risk. But we also cannot eliminate the fact that this is happening. And so what I feel we have to do is bring people along as fast as we can with the strongest, most credible, most balanced material we can find and bring them along to where it will not be a huge surprise. Because sooner or later, this is going to be in our face. We don't have a choice about that. We only, we're only stalling for time right now. Well, my guest this morning, uh, following you, Michael, is Don Berliner, who wrote uh, Crash at Corona. Huh? So it should be an opportunity to look into what seemed to begin it all and is cited today as the best evidence, I suppose. That we're being visited. Uh, do you, do, by the way, do you agree with that? With all the new 
uh, information coming out about uh, uh, the crash uh, in New Mexico. Is that about the best evidence? Oh, when we, when I, whenever I give a talk, I, uh, I tell my audiences that I, I feel it is basically uh, fundamentally important that they uh, pick up you know, one or another of the major Roswell books, and there have been several good ones lately, including the one that Don and uh, Stan Friedman wrote, and just learn the basic chronology. It is the most important single case we have. I think it's also important to recognize that it's not the only case, that there are many, many other strong corroborating cases, but Roswell sets the tone in so many ways because it has so many quality witnesses. It has all of the features, all of the claims for the basic UFO phenomena are there. The technology, the recovery, the bodies, the witnesses, and the cover-up, all in one huge, beautifully packaged picture. And if we had no other case but that case, we would have enough uh, to build something pretty strong. Hmm. Fascinating. And fascinating uh, getting all this from your perspective as somebody who looks at trends and uh, toward the future. And you see all of this uh, increasing toward some... Toward what, Michael? Toward, toward a revelation? Uh, eventually, and, and how do you picture it coming? Will somebody come out with the President of the United States trot out with a big primetime evening news address and uh, tell the American people the truth suddenly, or how do you think it might occur? Oh, as, as I think I've already tried to, to intimate, I don't really think there's any political advantage in just trotting out the truth. I think that remains. Well, the government uh, usually trots out the truth when they have to. In other words, when, when somebody else is about to reveal something or it's going to break in the Washington Post or who knows what, they try to get out ahead of it. Well, indeed, and I think they've, as I say, in some instances, with MJ-12 as a, as a striking example, they have been trotting out pieces of quasi-truth. The problem is this is a very complicated subject at best. It's highly ambiguous. They can trot out a lot of stuff that ain't true, but that looks pretty interesting. And uh, so I... It's going to be difficult for anyone to know precisely when they're hearing the truth. Well, that's it. Short of, say, the president announcing something, Don, I've thought about this many times. If you consider the Kennedy assassination, right, which has a million theories, just like the UFO business does, um, if, if Don Berliner or anybody else came out with yet uh, an, another, uh, you would purport it to be the truth, and you would have a film, and you would have trajectories showing how the bullet went and all the rest of it, it would be, Don, when all was said and done, still just one more theory thrown onto the pile. And even if it were the absolute truth, it would be lost in the shuffle. It could be lost in the shuffle, that is correct. Obviously, if it came from the lips of the President or the Secretary of Defense or somebody like that, Different it would be all kinds of additional weight. Um, but I think what we have right now is a growing national conversation. your show, literally hundreds, maybe thousands of other venues that are cropping up around the country, and mostly in local markets, that are, that are bringing out this material. Uh, we've got more credible research being put out in print and in television work than ever before, by far. And so what we see here is a sort of a building momentum of information which helps the entire situation along. I, I think I have a personal concern that... Um, that people need to be brought into this gently uh, because none of us handle this kind of surprise very well. You've made that point yourself, and, and you're absolutely right. So, again, we can't just, you know, we can't just pitch it to them and expect them to, to take it lying down. It's not going to happen that way. But bringing them along is very important. 
All right, uh, Don, we're way, woefully short on time here, running over, but you would make a really good guest, and I would like to suggest to Angela, uh, Angela Thompson that she, uh, she contact you at the, uh, uh, from the foundation and perhaps think of you as a guest. You'd make a, a good uh, full evening guest. Well, thank you very much. I'd be very happy to do that. All right, Michael, um, we've got a scoot, and you may want to put Linda on one more time, but please uh, let's follow up on that. I'd like to have you as a guest. All right, I will, uh, I will uh, see to it that we get that information to you. And here's Linda. All right, thank you, Michael Linda. Right. Hi, hi, Linda. Boy, he'd make a great guest. Well, I think so, too. I've always thought that. Uh, Michael and I have had long and complex discussions for the last four years on a lot of these issues. And next uh, Sunday, I believe, um, I'm on uh, the docket for you to lob questions to me about That's right. some of these facts and eyewitnesses that uh, are global and are supporting the, um, at least circumstantial evidence that something else is involved with our planet. And the, uh, I think this current interview that you've just done with uh, Michael Lindemann uh, underscores the difficulty that uh, the government has in getting this out and that some of us who are writing and producing television shows may in the long run be the people who are helping them tell the story that they can't tell easily. Okay, Linda, um, I will look forward to speaking with you, as everybody else will, uh, next week as a guest. And, um, and I want to thank you for being here this morning and bringing Michael Lindemann. He was really uh, fascinating. Right. Well, thanks. And uh, I know that Don Berliner also has uh, deep knowledge about the Roswell incident. So, uh, got speed on that interview. All right. Linda, thank you. Gons Plaza downtown. This is KDWN Las Vegas. Good evening, everybody. You're listening to Area 2000. I'm Art Bell. And now Don Berliner, a staff writer uh, for the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. Uh, between 1965 and 8, a member of the Executive Committee and National Board of the Fund for UFO Research since 1987. He wrote, um, or co-wrote, I guess, or wrote, uh, Crash at Corona, published by Paragon House in 1992. He is a full-time, self-employed aviation and science writer since 1969, with 20 books, hundreds of magazine articles published on American and European aviation history, um, sporting aviation space, and science. And uh, Don Berliner comes to us from Alexandria, Virginia. So to the state of Virginia we go. Mr. Berliner, uh, good evening. Uh, good evening to you, Art. Uh, welcome to the program. I, um, this is all the information that I have on you, but I, I guess you wrote Crash at Corona, correct? Yeah. Uh, Stan Friedman did the investigation, and I wrote the book. And you wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly... Uh, let, let's. Let, I guess let's begin there, if we can, Don. It is, by so many people that I've had on this program, considered to be, without a doubt, the best evidence, and there's a lot of new information coming forth now. What What would you say about it, uh, having written that book? Well, certainly the, the case is the most thoroughly investigated, and it's the most thoroughly supported. More 
impressive witnesses who were involved in a variety of aspects of the case than in any other case, anything remotely comparable. Uh, it's not the perfect case. There is no such thing, I suppose. Uh, if we had a body or if we had a big pile of, of wreckage, uh, I guess that would make it perfect. But short of that, uh, it's as close as we have gotten so far to what we've all been chasing after for a very long time. Um, let me just uh, diverge for a moment. Uh, you heard, I'm sure, uh, Michael Lindemann. Huh? And he works on trends and where we're headed with this whole thing. Uh, I wonder if you generally concur with uh, what what he had to say regarding the public's um, eventual knowing or knowledge of everything that's going on. Uh, in general, yeah, I agree with some parts of what he said, disagree with other parts, but uh, eventually this has to come out, uh, whether it comes out by the government voluntarily releasing the information or whether the government's forced into doing it or whether it comes out as a result of some major change in alien behavior uh that's anybody's guess but uh you are convinced the government does know and is covering all this up close to a hundred percent convinced yeah uh as close as is needed to keep going in this What's what's done it for you? Is it uh, writing the book on Corona? Oh no! It's I've been in the game for quite a while. Uh, I go back to the mid '60s with NICAP. Uh, prior to that, uh, I worked on newspapers and covered UFO stories. Uh, oh, back in the early '50s, I'm trying to. That, that's a long time. Uh, trying to get this clear in my own mind. Uh, I was involved in uh, investigating reports and tracking this, that, and the other. So it's come gradually. Okay, you've studied UFO history, particularly 1944 to 1952, I guess. How do you compare that period of time with, uh, with today or with the last few years? Oh, very, very different. Uh, in the early days the late 40s, early 50s. Most sighting reports involve daylight observations uh, where the witness or witnesses were able to produce considerable information on shape, color, detail, maneuvers, that sort of thing. Today we get, by and large, uh, funny lights in the night sky which are next to worthless. Uh, the subject was frequently on the front page of the paper. Uh, this is not the case anymore. Uh, in fact, sightings are, are a minor part of it anymore. Uh, the focus uh, seems to have moved toward ab the abduction phenomenon. Yeah, oh, very definitely. Very definitely. Uh, and uh, an another big change is that uh, there's considerable interest among scientifically trained people. Uh, in the case of abductions, uh, interest in the mental, mental health community, psychologists, psychiatrists, etc. Uh, by, by the way, uh, while we're on that subject, and I'll try and dig it out, there is a, a Associated Press report this morning on exactly that topic, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out what I might have done with it. 
I'll try and locate it, but it's out this morning, showing that people who have seen uh, UFOs and have been tested are psychologically no more impaired than anybody else. Interesting. I like to see uh, I'll see what I can do. Okay. Uh, but back to this idea of comparing the early days with today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see much in the way of similarity, frankly. Uh, there was far more public interest in the subject many, many years ago. And they say it was on the on the front pages, it was on the radio, uh, on television, when television became common. Uh, today, most of the coverage we see is unfortunately under the, the heading of entertainment uh, because there is not all that much breaking news on the subject. Uh, gradual trends, gradual development, but hardly any spectacular sightings that uh, produce news coverage, that warrant news coverage. And so with abductions, they're so complicated and they are so emotional and so personal that they're very difficult to cover. Uh, and so the public isn't aware of a Let's let's go backwards. You you wrote the book uh, Crash Corona. Um, tell me a little bit about that crash. What impresses you so much and everybody else about it? And what's what's new uh, uh, in terms of people coming forward? What impresses me is the witnesses. Uh, after all, this is how you have in in the great majority of UFO incidents, whether they're conventional sightings or crashes and retrievals or whatever. Uh, Neither you nor I was there when it happened, so all we have is the testimony of people who claim to have been there and seen something very unusual. In the case of the crash near Corona, New Mexico in 47, it's the number of witnesses, the caliber of those witnesses, the behavior of the witnesses. All right, how many were there? Witnesses? Yes. Oh, boy, I don't... (laughs) Oh... Over a dozen first-hand witnesses and more than that many second-hand witnesses. Uh, I've heard claims of hundreds, uh, four, five, six hundred. I I don't believe anything of the sort. Uh, And you don't need that many. Uh, We've had that many witnesses to UFO sightings, and it really didn't make a whole lot of difference. How, How much did the witnesses actually see when we say... Witnesses, are we talking about people who saw uh, the, the crash itself, saw the pieces on the ground, saw the alien bodies that some people have talked about? What kind of witness testimony are we talking about? We're talking about people who saw and handled wreckage and can describe it in detail. We're talking about people who say they were involved in SGIs, in trading a lot, loading it on military aircraft, uh, being uh, members of, of crews that flew this stuff out from Roswell Army Airfield, uh, including pilots of the, the transport airplanes, uh, people who were involved in the cover-up, uh, people who claimed to have seen uh, the remains uh, at other bases. Uh, well, that's about what we asked about, brother. I have to read a customer. Oh, wow. 
is there that what crashed uh, in New Mexico was not some sort of secret government something or another, uh, but, but indeed something secret, something that uh, they then transported, but something other than alien? Well, you have to look at the possibilities, and, and that's very important. Uh, you can't just accept this because it's so darn colorful and exciting. Uh, you have to challenge the assumption that uh, aliens were involved. and So you've got to look at what, it, what else it might have been. All right. When you challenge it, um, how well does, uh, does the alien uh, theory hold up? Uh, far better than any of the others. Uh, in, other words, in other words, if you just start picking away at the details that I'm sure even you chronicled uh, in Crash at Corona and start picking away and picking away, how, how many things can you dismiss from a debunker's point of view? Uh, complicated question. Uh, the alternative explanations that I'm aware of concern balloons, airplanes, and rockets. Uh, none of these things was made of materials that remotely resemble what people said was found 
on the sheep ranch near Corona. Uh, not a slight difference, a great difference. Plus, and there was always a possibility that some advanced aircraft or weapon of some sort uh, was made of some new type of material, but it also would have included conventional materials and parts, uh, rivets, bolts, nuts, screws, whatever. Right. Nothing of the sort has ever been reported among the wreckage that was found. All right. I have also heard rumors, Don, that there is existing in private hands pieces of wreckage. Have you heard that? Oh, sure. Uh, I'd be surprised if that weren't the case. We keep trying to follow up on leads, and as yet have gotten nowhere, but uh, there are uh, lots of stories. And let's face it, it fits in with human nature. If I had been one of the G.I.'s, assigned to help clean up the sheep ranch after the crash, I certainly would have tried to pocket something. Uh, if I had been clever enough, I might have gotten away with it. And that would be somewhere today. Uh, we've heard from a number of people who have reasonable stories about seeing scraps of material long after the crash. But as yet, we haven't found any. All right, I promised you this story. This cleared the wire literally a couple of hours ago. Huh? thought you might find it interesting along with the audience. A new study says people who think they've seen a UFO or space alien are no crazier than the rest of us. Researchers found that UFO reporters scored no worse than others on tests of psychological, health, intelligence, and fantasy proneness. Study co-author Patricia Cross of Carleton University in Ottawa says they appeared to be, quote, very normal, end quote. Cross reports the work in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology. The finding does not mean these people actually spotted a UFO or space alien. Cross thinks many misrepresented unfamiliar sites or experiences and were influenced by a prior belief in visits by space aliens. But she says the findings contradict the idea that these people have wild imaginations and are easily swayed into believing the unbelievable. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're done, maybe you could fax that, a copy of that to me. Um, I would be glad to. Do I, I don't know if I have your fax number here or not. I don't think so. Okay, I'll give it to you off the air. All right. Um, uh, so, so there you are. And I must tell you, Don, and maybe you, can, maybe you can comment on this. I had my own sighting. I'm 48 years old. Never saw a thing like it in my life, Don. One night on the way home from work, um, my wife, uh, on a very lonely country road, I live about 65 miles west of Las Vegas, as we were approaching home or near home, she said, what the hell is that? And looked over my shoulder. I was driving. I said, I don't know. And I stopped the car, turned off the engine, totally quiet. You could only hear crickets, uh, uh, Don, uh, a quarter of a mile away. That tells you how quiet it was. Here comes this, <laughs> this gigantic triangular, um, very dark shape, about 150 feet above me, not high at all, uh, with lights on, um, uh, white lights on two sides and a strobing red light on the front of the triangle. It was uh, close enough to me, there was a moon out, that I could see it perfectly. I could actually make out the mass, the black mass of this thing. And it was going slowly, could not have been supported in aerodynamic flight at that speed. I would describe it as floating, 
floated just almost uh, uh, directly over my car and kept going out across the valley. It was totally silent, not even the sound of rushing air, and could not have been flying as we understand flying. And uh, it was big, 100, maybe 150 feet uh, from one, one edge of the triangle to the other. It was monstrous. I've never seen anything like it in my life, Don. We live close to Area 51. Uh, uh, we're just one valley over, so it might have been government uh, experimental, but I'll guarantee it's technology that I don't, I'm not aware of. Yeah, it certainly doesn't fit anything I know about the science of uh, aerodynamics. Uh, but we got a lot of reports from that general area of quite peculiar flying things. Well, if it is ours, A, I'm glad we have it, very glad. B, it, it's technology that hasn't even been hinted at because this thing was large and quiet and uh, I'm, I'm telling you, Don, um, I've, I've never seen anything like it in my life, and I don't expect to ever again, but it was quite an experience. I can imagine. And uh, my wife saw it as well. So there you have it. We have something, or they have something. Uh, what do you know about our technology? Since you write about aviation, hmm? what do we have? <laughs> I don't know how we would make one of those, frankly. Uh but just because I don't know doesn't mean that uh, the people in charge of making things like that don't know. Uh, after all, the most advanced airplanes that are generally known to the public are Lockheed's SR-71 Blackbird spy plane, which has been retired right. and is 25, 28-year-old technology. And... Uh, Lockheed's stealth fighter, uh, which has been around for quite a few years. So uh, we have to have more advanced types of aircraft. Uh, and uh, who knows what we've learned in the past couple of decades that uh, has been kept secret. Uh, well, is it your view that we are privy to some alien technology? I don't know. Uh, I am, I don't see any evidence of it. Uh, I will not go so far as to assume that this strange thing you saw was not developed by uh, one of the aerospace companies strictly on its own. Uh, they've done some pretty good work over the years. Uh, it might be the result of uh, acquired technology, but uh, without some evidence, uh, I won't uh, go that far. Well... What did, you know, if there was a crash at Corona, uh, what did we learn from that, do you suppose? Uh, in other words, we must have had the pieces and parts and bodies and this and that, so presumably we'd try to reverse engineer or learn whatever we could learn from it. Oh, sure. And people have been looking at, they've been looking at major advances in technology whose origins are a bit misty and could have come from that. Obviously, uh, nobody's going to include on his patent application that uh, he started with a, a chunk of alien spacecraft. And so he's got to cover it up with some kind of a cute story. Uh, but you can never cover up anything completely. And so there are a number of things being looked at uh, as possibly having come out of the wreckage. Uh, relatively simple things. When you get into really high-tech stuff, you're over my head. And uh, 
it would take somebody with real scientific knowledge uh, to, to look at that, but consider something like Velcro. Yes. It appeared not long after the crash. Now, it's credited to a Swiss who said he was walking his dog in the woods and noticed how the burrs clung to, to his trousers and the dog's coat, and he invented Velcro. That may be true. Oh, darn. Uh, and it may not be true, uh, because a number of the reports of people who claim to have seen the body say that their uniforms were held together without common devices, buttons, uh, zippers, etc. Uh, it's a possibility that deserves to be looked at, and it is being looked at. Really? Uh, so, uh, so, so Velcro could actually be technology from elsewhere? Could be. Huh. Not saying it is. I don't want the listeners... I understand. I, I, I never considered that. It's... Uh, I don't know where the, the uh, patent payments would go, but uh, maybe the aliens have bank accounts there. Uh, <laughs> anyway, another possibility is the transistor. Oh, yes. Uh, certainly the transistor marked uh, a, a change in our whole uh, science in our, our whole future and uh, has allowed almost all of the advances since. Oh, we'd still be playing around with radios having vacuum tubes uh, if it weren't for the transistor and, and what it led to. And there is reason to be suspicious of, of the development of the transistor. Why? Uh, semiconductor technology, why? Uh, you well, According to a history of Bell Labs, and that's where the transistor supposedly was invented, uh -huh. it appeared rather suddenly. Uh, I've seen it, seen a reference in one oh, encyclopedia of science, I forget the exact name of it, uh -huh. where they said the transistor wasn't, didn't say it was invented at Bell Labs, they said it was discovered. Well, you discover something that's already in existence. Uh, you invent something brand new. It's true. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, and it, again, like Velcro, it emerged shortly after the crash. Uh, oh, I believe in December 1947, which is just a few months after the, the corona crash. So, it's true. Uh, intriguing. Uh, no proof, uh, and not very solid evidence for that matter, but enough I think to warrant uh, investigation was the uh, and this is I guess a technical question you may not be able to answer it but it's a good one was semiconductor technology uh, at that point a logical leap from the place where we were or is it in fact an illogical leap I don't know you're over my head there it's a very good question though and uh, I, I don't know that you can answer the same question with regard to Velcro, <laughs> but certainly with the transistor, it seems to me somebody who's familiar with the uh, technical history, and I know something about it, could tell us whether that's a logical or illogical technological leap. Mm -hmm. hmm. a good question, and maybe a listener knows something. Perhaps so. Uh, so at, at any rate, uh, given all the evidence that you've studied and all your study, you are absolutely convinced this is real. Well, they say almost 100% convinced. 100% only when I have a piece of the thing in my hand. 
But uh, short of that, yeah. yeah. What, uh, what about a modern uh, a piece of evidence, something a little more modern? What about all the sightings, for example, in Florida? Um, is there anything uh, of modern significance, uh, the abduction phenomenon, somebody you may have talked to um, that would be of great modern significance? What would you cite as the best current evidence? Uh, I think it has to go back to the way we looked at things during the heyday of daylight sightings. No one sighting meant that much. No one abduction case means that much. It's the great stack of them that, that means something. Uh, any one case can be discounted, I suppose. But when you've got hundreds of them that all say approximately the same thing, then you've got something of great consequence. Is it your view that all of this uh, is benign or in some way malevolent? Uh, have you made that decision yourself yet? I haven't, no. Uh, I don't see any particular evidence of evil intent. And there again, this is something we used to talk about back in the, the great days of fighting. Uh, there were several cases of pilots, military pilots, being lost on attempted intercepts of yeah. UFOs. Uh, some people took this as proof that uh, they were bad guys. Uh, I never saw it that way. I All right, Don, I'm going to ask you to, to rest, just sit down and rest for five minutes, and we'll do a newscast and come back and open the telephones and let some people talk with you. How's that? <laughs> Don Berliner is my guest. Stay right there, Don. We'll be back. You're listening to Area 2000, an occurrence on Sunday evening each, beginning at 8 o'clock, 8 till 10 o'clock each Sunday. I'm Art Bell. There's more with Don Berliner in a moment. From Jackie Gons Plaza downtown, this is KDWN Las Vegas. Good evening. Welcome back to Area 2000. My name is Art Bell. And I want to remind all of you that uh, what you're listening to is provided by the Bigelow Foundation. And uh, that's a non-trivial matter. They're arranging for all this. They arrange for guests. They sponsor the program with a grant. And that's why we're here. If you'd like to contact the Bigelow Foundation, would like something investigated, or you'd like to make a comment on the program, contact Angela Thompson, please. She's your contact at the Bigelow Foundation. Angela Thompson, area code 702-456-1606. And it probably wouldn't hurt just to call and thank them for doing this. That's area code 702 Four five six one six zero six. if you enjoy the program. My guest is Don Berliner. If you have a comment or a question, here are the uh, relevant telephone numbers. In the Las Vegas metropolitan area, the number is 383-8255. 383-8255. Out of state, toll 
free. It's 1-800-338-8255. 1-800-338-8255. Then we have the wild card, direct dial lines. Let them ring until they're answered. Area code 702-385-7214. And finally, if you have never called at all, the first-time caller line at area code 702-385-7213. Back to our guest now, Don Berliner. Don, are you still there? I am. Are you ready for your public? I guess so. <laughs> uh, one quick question first, Don. You've, uh, you've written uh, Crash at Corona. What might be next for you? Are you working on anything now, or do you plan another? Not working on anything in on UFOs at the moment, but my agent has some ideas he's trying to sell. Uh, I'm doing back doing aviation stuff right now. I see. All right, fine. Well, it makes you uh, well qualified to comment on things that do fly. <laughs> All right, let's see what we've got on the telephone. Well, on our first time caller line, you're on the air with Don Berliner. Good evening. Hello, Art. Uh, Don, uh, my name is Mike. I'm calling from San Luis Obispo, California, and uh, I uh, am kind of playing catch-up with a lot of the evidence that's coming out. I've been reading uh, since my own uh, lost time experiences and uh, sightings, and I'd like to ask Don a uh, kind of a critical question, um, and I'll just ask my question and then let you answer on the air. Okay. Uh, first, uh, is the evidence uh, that you know of substantial enough to suggest that the events described in Whitley Strober's Communion or other books are real uh, in the common sense? And what are the scientific theories that make this possible? And uh, could you just comment on the round room experience? All right, let's see what we can do with all that. Okay, uh, as far as... The legitimacy of Whitley Strieber's experiences as described primarily in his first book, Communion. Uh, they fit in pretty well with what hundreds and hundreds of other people have described. And so, uh, uh, yeah, I would assume that uh, this probably did happen to him. Now, most of his writings on the subject are wrapped up in his own philosophy, his own attempts to explain what was going on, and that's strictly Whitley. Uh, but his descriptions of his experiences fit in very neatly with other people's descriptions of their experiences. So either they're all genuine or they're all something else. And so uh, uh, I tend to, uh, to think that he probably experienced uh, what he described, and of course he's far more capable of describing things than the great majority of people. Hmm. Uh, he asked about theories that validate it. Well, I don't think there are any. I think uh, all this stuff is outside our theories, our scientific theories, and that's one of the puzzling and one of the fascinating as aspects of it. This is something very, very new and different. All right, and finally, what in the world is the round room? I've never heard of that. At least two of us. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't know what that is. All right, uh, very good. Line one, good evening. Uh, you're on the air with Don Berliner. Hi, this is Mike in Las Vegas. Hi, Mike. 
And uh, I'd like to ask you, Art, when you'll be having your guest uh, back on who spoke about the Philadelphia experiment. And secondly, I'd like to ask Don if anyone has ever reported encountering female aliens. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'll answer the first question. Al Bielek will be back on. I don't yet know when. Uh, I had him on uh, my syndicated program uh, in the early morning some time ago, and we'll have him on again. Uh, your turn, Don. Uh, female aliens. I'm losing my mind. Uh, female aliens. Have female you aliens, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, quite a few reports of female aliens. Some of the reports indicate that the witness didn't know why he or she considered them female, but was convinced they were female. Uh, but uh, in some cases they were female shaped. Uh, other cases uh, it wasn't clear why they seemed to be female. But uh, that certainly is part of it. Would it be your view, Don, that there are aliens on Earth now? Some people suggest that. Uh, I've never seen any. Uh, you mean this, this idea that they're living among us? And That's right. I guess, That's right. Mm -hmm. How in the world do you tell? Uh, I mean, I've had <laughs> I some odd know. neighbors. But, uh, <laughs> uh, if they were clever enough, we would never be aware of it. And so uh, I think it's a, a very tough question to deal with. Uh, I assume that they are continuing their abduction activities, which means there are probably a number of groups of them. Uh, landed in various farmers' fields around the country right now. But uh, as far as aliens who look exactly like people, uh -huh. uh, you, you've, uh, right there, you've eliminated any mechanism for uh, detecting them. That's a very good point. Um, well, good evening. It would have been good evening. Let's see. Uh, good evening. You're on the air with Don Berliner in Las Vegas. Where are you, please? I'm calling from Oceanside, California. Oceanside, yes, sir. Uh, hi, Mr. Berliner. Hi, Art. Uh, say, uh, for the most part, whenever I hear people talking about uh, uh, things dealing with uh, aliens and visits from outer space, uh, it's always when will the uh, government release the information or how is the government going to do it uh, and things like that. Uh, how about the possibility of uh, an alien spacecraft just plain coming out of the sky and and uh, exposing themselves to the, uh, you know, some great uh, population center. Coming down at, say, the White House, something like that. Or anywhere. You know, instead of always waiting for the government to uh, uh, reveal some uh, uh, knowledge about, uh, you know, spacecraft. Well, since we don't have any way of encouraging aliens to do that and it's obviously very much up to them uh we just got to sit back and wait for something to happen well it sort of sounds when uh, you know for the most part people seem to think that the government is controlling uh uh alien access to uh earth no, no i think that people feel the government is controlling access to government-held information but uh, not to, I don't think the government has a whole lot of control over the aliens. Yeah, I don't well, see evidence of it. So uh, uh, what do you think of the possibility of, uh, uh, say, instead of relying on the government, what do you think of the possibility of uh, 
a spacecraft one day. Uh... All right, caller, it's a good question. Let me rephrase it for Don and listen on the air, please. Um, Don, let's try it from this point of view. What do you think might happen if an alien spacecraft actually did come down and just hang above a city where it was obvious nobody could deny it, everybody covered it, CNN rushed over, there it is, an alien spacecraft. How do you think that our society, the world, would react? Oh, boy. <laughs> By asking that question, you're giving me far more credit than I deserve. Uh, I think some people would insist that it wasn't happening. I think some people would panic. And I think other people uh, would find it a very interesting event. And if it did not appear to be directly threatening to them, probably wouldn't bother the majority of people. Uh, people become blasé pretty quickly. Uh, well, they do, but I, I think that story would run for a while. Actually, uh, Don, it would be, I suppose, the story uh, of all time, wouldn't it? Uh, well, it depends. If the whole story were that this huge craft hovered over Los Angeles for an hour and let itself be televised, etc., and then flew away then the implications wouldn't be all that great. Mm. However, it landed on second base during the third game of the World Series, <laughs> and a bunch of hideous-looking creatures got out. We've got a problem. Well, unless people thought they were playing for the Phillies. Uh, <laughs> but it could be very, very frightening. And so it all depends on what happens, uh, not the mere fact that something significant happens and so uh it, the reaction could range all the way from from near boredom after the first few minutes to utter terror utter terror mm -hmm. all right uh line two good evening you're on the air with don berliner on yeah. the alien tunneling in the earth do you know or do you have anything oh, that that is a good question yes a lot of people have talked uh, don about alien tunneling and uh, that there are mazes of tunnels that run underground in some cases from one state to another what have you heard about that nothing uh, that impressed me uh, I'd like to see some evidence of it you know there are lots of theories but any theory that isn't backed up by something doesn't carry a whole lot of weight and so I don't know who these theories come from and if there is anything to support the theories yep. I'm not aware of anything Right, and everybody always wants to know where is all the dirt gone that was taken from these tunnels and all the rest of it. Uh, so you don't, you, that's not one of one of the things you lead, you give a lot of credence to. No, not no. at all. All right, Wild Card Line 3, you're on the air with Don Berliner in Las Vegas. Where are you calling from, please? I'm calling from uh, Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe, all right. Yes, and um, I have an interesting story about um, sighted aircraft. My great-great-grandfather lived in Hillsburg, California, and he sighted an airship in 1897, and they didn't know what to really call it or how to explain it. And he was afraid to report it to the uh, authorities or newspaper because he was afraid he'd be uh, accused of inventing the machine, and it emitted a very bright light, uh, such as an arc lamp, and it was sighted in San Francisco around the Cal Palace and up and down the West Coast, you know, the Pacific Coast. And uh, when was this actually? 
1897. And it was reported... I don't have it with me right now. It's in, in my home in Yuba City. I'm Nancy from Yuba City. <laughs> Remember that? Yes, Nancy. The worst place in the whole U.S. to live. Yuba City is what they say. Anyway, um, they, 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 it was uh, sighted at night. I don't know that it was a, a balloon. I don't know why people would be flying a hot air balloon at night. Uh, it was uh, in the newspaper, the Healdsburg Tribune, and I think it was around November and December, those months that they cited it, and they uh, explained that it preambulated to the sky. Hmm. <laughs> it's really... Don, what... Um, all right, let me take it from there, Nancy. Thank you. Uh, Don, what about UFO um, studies prior to the, the mid-40s? Uh, as you go on back, incidents like the ones, uh, the one that she just described or others, is there a lot of history prior to the mid-40s? Oh, sure. In fact, the first recognized wave of sightings was exactly what Nancy was talking about. There were reports from coast to coast of what became known as the 1897 airships. Hmm. Uh not all that much similarity to modern UFOs or flying saucers, except that they were just as mysterious. They, a lot of the reports were obviously phony, uh, created by unscrupulous newspaper reporters, but uh, uh, it appears that there was also something substantial going on that could not be explained by existing lighter-than-aircraft. There's almost is, no lighter-than-aircraft right. flown in this country. Is, is there enough evidence, in your opinion, to suggest that the UFO phenomenon, as we understand it, has been going on nearly forever, as long as we've been recording events? Or, Well, uh, I, I, I won't go that far. Uh, you go much more than 100 years back, and it's really hard to tell, because uh, the reports are very vague, hardly any specific bits of information. You obviously can't go back and re-interview the witnesses. They're all dead. Uh, language has changed. Uh, but there were reports of very peculiar things in the sky uh, 100, 150 years ago. Before that, uh, it gets awfully murky. And uh, it's intriguing. It makes good reading. But it's of no particular scientific value, but certainly starting with the 1897 airship wave, which was from coast to coast, uh, something was going on, uh, something as yet unexplained. An intriguing area of study. Oh, yeah. Intriguing, It's uh, but of course uh, no, uh, uh, no video cameras uh, back then and uh, much less evidence, so it's difficult, but nevertheless an intriguing area. On the first time caller line, you're on the air with Don Berliner. Good evening. Yes, good evening. Uh, this is Bob from Las Vegas. Hi, Bob. And um, uh, I enjoyed uh, the book uh, written by uh, Stan uh, Friedman and Don Berliner. I thought it was quite well done. Thank you. Uh, I'm particularly interested in the uh, resolution of the question of, the main, of where the main crash site is. Uh, whether it's uh, somewhere between Corona uh, or, or in the vicinity of Corona or whether it's uh, in the plains of San Augustine. With the credibility of one of the characters in the book, uh, Gerald Anderson, being questioned by uh, 
several writers. Um, I'm also wondering whether there's uh, a disagreement now between you and Stan about uh, uh, adhering to the plains of San Augustine as the main crash site. No, we never considered it the main crash site. Uh, the way we express it in the book and the way we still see it is there probably were two crashes, separate crashes. Mm -hmm. uh, the great amount of evidence and testimony is for the crash in Corona, near Corona, to the east, in the eastern part of New Mexico. The crash in the plains of San Augustine, which is in western New Mexico, uh, the main witness, the main eyewitness, uh, is no longer considered reliable about Gerald Anderson. Wasn't there uh, another witness? Uh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, enough other evidence to make us feel there was a crash there. <clears throat> it's just that uh, we cannot rely on, on the details provided by Anderson. And so uh, the primary crash, as far as reliability and, and witnesses and such are concerned, uh, is the crash uh, near Corona. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're still looking for more witnesses to the San Augustine crash, but it does appear that there was one. And they probably happened at about the same time and probably were related in some way, whether it was a mid-air collision or what, we don't know. Hmm. But uh, the more substantial event was the one near Corona. I see. Uh, were you able to um, uh, come to any uh, satisfactory conclusion about uh, how or why uh, Mr. Anderson uh, uh, may have uh, given false information, if in fact he did? No. No, you, you never pin those things down, unfortunately. Uh, it's not that we think that none of his information is good. But because of his subsequent behavior, we just can't rely on it. I don't know whether the audience is familiar with that. You may wish to comment on that. Well, uh, Gerald Anderson claimed to have been with a group of relatives when they stumbled across a, an intact craft and three bodies and one live one about 150 miles west of the crash site near Corona at about the same time, early July of 47. And he went into great detail describing the bodies and the behavior of the live one and the uh, the craft and the damage to it and what it looked like uh, in the damaged area and on and on and on and how the, when the military arrived and what they did. And uh, he may well have been there, but uh, he has done and said some things that bother us. And so... Uh, I have written a, a special preface to the paperback edition, which may or may not be published now, uh, in which we uh, state this clearly, that uh, we unfortunately can't rely on him anymore. And that's life. It just does happen. Uh, you never can pin down a single witness. You can never prove that a witness is telling the truth. And so you have to go on your best instincts, and in this case, we were wrong. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, caller. Uh, Don, if I were in the disinformation business or I wanted to quiet all this down, I think what I would do is I would create create a very believable UFO incident, something that uh, really seemed solid, and then a little time later, I think I would prove that it was a complete fraud 
and most of the public, in their minds anyway, would suddenly go, ah, yeah, see, nothing, nothing to it really. I mean, it would be, it would really be a service to the disinformation folks. Yeah, but it could also be very difficult to prove that it was a fraud. Uh, this is certainly the case with the main MJ-12 document, the Eisenhower briefing paper. Uh, no one has ever proven that it's a hoax, even though a lot of people assume this. Uh, but uh, What is your view? Uh, that it's almost certainly genuine. Uh, it may have been jimmied up. Uh, there may be, have been some cutting and pasting involved. Uh, it's certainly incomplete, but uh, either it's genuine or it is so close to the real thing that you could hardly tell the two of them apart because it makes sense. It fits what reasonably would have been done. And uh, there's no way to prove, at this stage of the game at least, that it's genuine because the few people who would know are not going to talk. Uh, and so far, no one's proven that it's, uh, that it's a hoax. All right. Wild Card Line 3, you're on the air with Don Berliner in Las Vegas. Hi. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm going to take this answer off the air. Uh, I uh, heard an interview out of Denver uh, with a uh, forensic investigator, and... Uh, he said that microscopic examination of the physical scars inflicted on the abductees appear the same geometric exam, uh, geometric design as the crop circles. And two, he cautioned that uh, aliens conduct deliberate misinformation. Nothing they say can be trusted, and they wish to discredit all the reports. Now, this fellow, if you know him, uh, was a Mr. Daryl Sims. And uh, just tell me if you know him, then I'll hang up. I don't know him, and I have great okay. question about what he's saying. He says aliens are conducting disinformation. Well, when they How does he know? This, when they answer, he was one for one, and he's got about 200 people that he's working with, and he's an anesthesiologist, uh, hypnotherapist, or whatever. He's got a mouthful, and, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, and uh, he's doing a lot with them, and... Uh, if they ask people ask questions, say, "What are you doing with this?" and so on. And oh, well, you can't believe anything they say. Yeah, I'll, I'll go along with that. The the answers that people get are generally nonsense. Totally. Yeah. But okay. whether that's disinformation or not, we have no way of knowing because we don't know how aliens think. All right, ma'am, we're going to have to scoot. Where are you? And the geometric design. Okay. Oh, well, that I haven't heard about. It's gone. But. Uh, there's such a wide variety of designs and crop formations that you could find something just about anywhere to, to match one of them. Crop formation. That's a good question. Uh, Don, hang on just one second while I ID the station here. Uh, Don Berliner is my guest. This is Area 2000. From Jackie Gons Plaza downtown, this is KDWN Las Vegas. Sunday night and Area 2000. Good evening. I'm Art Bell. My guest is Don Berliner from um, Alexandria, Virginia. He is an aviation science writer. The subject this morning is UFOs. Back to Don Berliner. Don, are you still there? I am. Good. Uh, 
What about crop circles, Don? Um, uh, Linda Howe and others are looking into both crop circles and animal mutilations. Does all of this in your mind figure into the rest of the phenomenon? I don't see any connection yet between crop circles and UFOs. Well, there are frequent sightings of UFOs in the area of crop circles. Uh, but not very good sightings and, and pretty vague reports, actually. And, of course, there are sightings lots of places where they don't have crop circles. But, uh, I, as I say, I don't see a connection. There, there, there could be coincidence. All right. However, I, I consider the crop formations, since they are much more than circles, to be uh, an independent mystery at this stage. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Certainly not all hoaxes. Uh, right. But what's going on uh, is anybody's guess. Uh, if it's a form of communication, it's a pretty terrible one because nothing's been communicated. Uh, but uh, it, it's very, very intriguing. And All right, what about the animal mutilations? They seem to kind of go together, and uh, they are very specific, Don. There are cuts made with high heat instruments. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, very precise cuts, organs removed, incredible things. You can see no other explanation. Well, uh, Linda is the expert on that. I'm not. But, again, I don't see much of a family Again, there have been fightings in the same general area, but not very good sightings and not sightings that have produced much information. And so uh, until there's better evidence, I, I will... I, can't say that there is a connection, but it's, again, it's a, a fascinating mystery unto itself. It is, indeed. Uh, line three, good evening. You're on the air with Don Berliner. Uh, good evening. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know any aliens, but since the 60s, I've seen an awful lot of strange people that act in strange ways that I would prefer to believe that they're aliens and that the human race has uh, uh, degenerated to that point. And I think you're reaching... I think we are degenerating, but I don't know that I'd blame it on the aliens. But you asked a question before about the uh, uh, the uh, research and the uh, discovery of uh, semiconductors. Yes. That was done through hard research. They researched many materials before they came upon the uh, uh, crystal, uh, silica crystal, uh, which uh, has a particular uh, atomic structure which has four holes in it positives and negatives. All right, well, you're suggesting then that the leap to semiconductor technology was logical and well-researched. No, it was uh, come about exactly like Edison came about through much experimentation. As to uh, transistors, the first I knew of transistors was in 1947 when my cousin, who never finished high school, as a matter of fact, he never attended high school, but he's uh -huh. some sort of an electrical genius, and he built a radio that worked underground in the subway in New York, and he used transistors, which came from Japan at the time. All right. Do you do you have a question for Mr. Berliner? Uh, no, I just really wanted to fill you in on that uh, uh, semiconductor information. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it, and that does help. Uh, I guess maybe it was uh, a logical uh, progression. Well, there there is considerable reason to suspect the origins of the transistor. Why, uh, Don? Give us a little, a few of those. Well, if you would. <laughs> some off-the-record comments by people in the intelligence community, for instance. Oh. Uh, who say that's one of the things that uh, came out of the out of uh, a crash, 
uh, you can't go into court with information like that, obviously, but uh, it keeps you investigating. Hmm. So, uh, um, that brings up another question, Don. Uh, if the government is keeping all of this secret, then surely uh, a lot of uh, government intelligence people don't know about this because other guests that I've had on the program say they give lectures and inevitably some people from the government even the CIA will show up for the lectures as interested as anybody else sure. well highly classified stuff is handled on a need-to-know basis uh, there's something like 700,000 people in this country cleared for top secret you don't tell every one of them everything uh, when you're dealing with very sensitive stuff, you limit it to people who need the information in order to do their jobs. It's what's called compartmented information. And so just because some CIA people or some Air Force intelligence people are not in on this doesn't mean that it's not there. And even if they are in on it, they wouldn't be able to say so. <laughs> Right, but presumably they wouldn't attend a, a lecture of that sort because they would already know the real stuff. Well, maybe they want to find out what uh, the private community has learned recently. That's true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Good evening on the first-time caller line. You're on the air in Las Vegas with Don Berliner. Good evening, Art. Good evening, Don. Hi. Now, where are you, sir? I'm right here in Las Vegas. All right. I have a, a series of two questions here. My first question has uh, two parts. And in contact with aliens whether it be through uh, direct contact in a civilized or peaceful manner, could this possibly be considered a reference? And uh, second, the second part of that question, in contact with aliens in a uh, traumatic or frightening experience, such as uh, an abduction or a possible biological testing, could they be considered our enemies? And the second question, uh, do all supposed aliens in all uh, documented uh, cases or, or reported cases, for that matter, look like the traditional big head, big eyes, uh, human-like body, or are there other types uh, that are out there? All right. Those are a couple of good questions. Uh, um, on the matter of their being friends or enemies, uh, they seem to control contact or meetings or communication. Uh, and the feeling that abductees come away with is that they're neither friends nor enemies. That they... They treat humans like laboratory animals. Uh, they have no apparent feeling toward them one way or the other. Mm. They're using them for something and uh, sending them back where they came from. Uh, so I don't know that you could call them friends or enemies. Uh, as far as the types, the most common type is the little big-headed gray fellers, but there are other types described uh, frequently uh, some that look pretty much like humans some that are kind of halfway between the human types and, and the little gray guys and occasionally something else, some really weird ones so uh, what this means, we don't know they could all come from the same place they could come from different places they could all actually be the same uh, but the the witnesses who are certainly not clear of mind when all this is going on could just get odd impressions. Uh, we're dealing with uh, fuzzy information, unfortunately. Huh. 
Uh, okay, uh, let's see where to uh, here, I guess. Good evening, you're on the air uh, with Don Berliner. Where are you calling from? Oh, uh, Mount Shasta. Mount Shasta. California? Yes. Uh, it's a mighty high place. Uh, it's not as grand as that face on Mars. Uh, what could you say about that, sir? All right, thank you. Uh, the face on Mars, uh, Mr. Berliner, a lot of uh, talk about that, uh, the NASA... A space probe, as you know, lost. A lot of people suspicious. What do you have to say? Well, the pictures that were sent back years ago are certainly interesting. Uh, Not to NASA, though. They seem to want to try to avoid investigating it further. Well, I think uh, they're afraid of being uh, laughed at, just like most UFO witnesses and most abductees. They're afraid of public negative public reaction. Uh, and, of course, we don't really know what's going on in uh, closed-door meetings at NASA. Uh, but as I say, the, the initial photographs were very intriguing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's quite unfortunate that the, uh, the Mars Observer uh, quit working. Unfortunate, uh, so then you, you do attribute it to uh, a uh, technical malfunction? Uh, I have no reason not to, and... and Certainly this sort of thing has happened before. Uh, in fact, it, it's becoming uh, frighteningly common right now. Uh, I don't know whether NASA is making a, a plea for more funding or, or they're showing the, the effects of uh, less funding than perhaps they should have gotten. <laughs> but uh, until I have some reason to think that uh, some, there's some monkey business going on, I'm not going to jump to that conclusion. All right. Wildcard Line 3, good evening. You're on the air with Don Berliner. Yes, sir. How you doing? Fine. Where are you, sir? Here in Las Vegas. All right. Go ahead. I had two questions. Uh, uh, in the world, there's only two places, or actually two cultures, that uh, created pyramids. The, Egypt the Egyptians and the Aztec Indians out of Mexico. How about Steve Wynn? Oh, Steve Wynn now. <laughs> or rather, the Luxor guy. Yeah, the Luxor guy, right. I'm sorry. And, uh, well, my question would be, uh, supposedly, it's been reported that inside the pyramids especially in Egypt, that there are paintings on the walls, or many paintings on the walls, of alien spacecraft, little guys coming out and, uh, and supposedly communicating with the Egyptians. And my question, I guess, would be, uh, at the time that the Egyptians were supposed, supposedly the most techno technologically advanced uh, culture on the Earth at that time, and I guess I kind of wonder, did that possibly, if that happened, play a part in our... Uh, traditional technology that we have today. All right. Thank you. Um, the ancient astronauts, I guess. Yeah. Well, again, some very interesting information, uh, some questions that need to be answered, but I think there's been far too great a tendency to jump to conclusions. Uh, the, the works of Eric von Daniken exposed a lot of information, but unfortunately were analyzed by the author in a, in a highly unscientific way. Uh, and so uh, the, uh, the questions remain. Uh, I don't know anything about paintings inside the pyramids of Egypt. That's uh, something new to me. But uh, there are ancient wall paintings and caves and that sort of thing that can be interpreted as... Uh, spacecraft and, and aliens and whatnot. We have uh, in this area, Don, an area called the Valley of Fire. 
which I've been to, and there are some uh, drawings on, this, on on the side of uh, some rock canyon areas there that really do look like, I mean, we're talking about stick people here with what appear to be helmets and all the rest of it. Um, and if, if you were depressed to say what they were, it's a man in a helmet. Oh, yeah, there are a lot of things like that that look very much like uh, they could have been ancient man's interpretation of uh, some strange things he'd seen. But uh, how do you check it out? That's the problem. It sure is. No way to get additional information. <laughs> and there is insufficient information contained in these paintings. And so we're stuck, we're stuck. Uh, until somebody comes up with something new. All right. Line three, you're on the air in Las Vegas with Don Berliner. Good evening. Uh, hi, I'm in Las Vegas. Yes, sir. Uh, in, in Revelation, it says that the, whenever the false prophet and the Antichrist get together, that they cause fire to flame down from heaven. And by this means, they'll deceive many. Uh, that kind of tells me that they're going to have the ability to maybe have laser beams burn up part of a city or something at will. Uh, but I, I'm looking for deception. And uh, it's not going to, uh, you know, interfere with my faith no matter what they do. And I just was in one of your opinion on that. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Uh, I won't get into religious matters. Uh, they're too too sticky. And so uh, well, people are welcome to interpret religious writings as they wish. <laughs> Don... Uh, would it be your view? A lot of people uh, suggest that the aliens, in effect, are our creators. Would you lean toward that view? No, it's certainly a possibility. Uh, but again, where's the evidence of it? Uh, they don't look all that much like us. Uh, and uh, there are general similarities, yeah. Uh, well, a body, a body, two arms, two legs, yeah, a head exactly. on top. Exactly. But uh, there are some major differences, certainly, and so uh, it's an intriguing possibility. Uh, a lot of people suggest the aliens are here for some sort of genetic uh, renewal or experiment or something that we can, in effect, do something for them or have something they need. Well, certainly the stories we get from abductees point to a great interest on the part of the aliens in the human reproductive process, but interpreting this is pretty tough. Uh, we don't know why they're doing it. Uh, we don't know if the reasons they give are the truth, because we've seen enough evidence of them giving ridiculous explanations and obviously incorrect explanations for things. You are to be applauded for not leaping with so many of the rest to conclusions about all this, Don. And, and well, I'll say it. Done that. Uh, in my three or four years working full-time for NICAP back in the 60s, I saw an awful lot of people lose their effectiveness by jumping to conclusions and then losing sight of the difference between theory and fact. Precisely. Um, Wild Card Line 3, good evening. You're on the air with Don Berliner. Uh, yes, this is uh, Leota from Tempe, Arizona. Tempe, Arizona. Hi there. Uh, hi. This is mainly a sort of a confirmation for the sighting that you saw. A group uh, called uh, the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrials went down to Mexico. Uh, the first part 
of February this year. And they were out in the desert about 11.45. They saw this light. They uh, signaled it, and it came closer. And it was your triangle. Try my triangle. Uh-huh. Uh, Don, it's a, it's a strange thing. I had never heard, oh, to me, they were always saucers or oblong or cigar-shaped, and I'd never heard of a triangle. And then I saw a triangle, and I've received nothing but reports of triangle sightings ever since. It's incredible. Oh, well, really? a lot of the UFOs seen in Russia a couple of years ago and chased by Soviet, then-Soviet Air Force fighters were described as triangular. So it, it's not that rare, but... It's, over the years, they haven't been common. Uh, it's like buying a new car and then seeing uh, others just like it everywhere. Uh, everybody bought the same thing. Same phenomenon, yes. Uh, anything well, else, ma'am? Hey, ma'am, anything else? No, I just wanted you to know you're not alone. They, I... This thing was 300 <laughs> feet across. Oh, boy. And when it turned, it, uh, this uh, straight part, uh, you know, the triangle part, there was a bank of lights that went on. All right, thanks for the report. Bye-bye. Um, right, bye. There's another report. Uh, they're just, they're constant, uh, Don. Oh, yeah. These reports just keep coming. And as you have suggested, the number of reports, even if you dismiss some percentage of them, uh, is uh, is very strong evidence when taken in total. Yeah, and especially when you face up to the fact that the great majority of sightings are never reported. We're just getting a, a few percent of the total. I would imagine that percent is slowly rising as acceptance of it all uh, seems greater. Wouldn't you imagine? I don't know that acceptance is any greater. Uh, Gallup polls over the years have shown uh, roughly about the same percentage of acceptance. Uh, but I, I think people are simply afraid of ridicule. And whether there is ridicule there or not doesn't matter. If they're afraid of it, that's what counts. And now... Uh, with no well-known private organizations in the field and no admitted government interest, people don't know how to report sightings. Right. All right, Don, let's keep moving. A lot of people want to talk to you. Uh, good evening uh, on the first-time caller line. You're on the air with Don Berliner. Hey, good evening, Don and Art. Hi. You're hard to hear, sir, so you have to... I said good evening, Don and Art. Yes, good evening. Uh, you're a little hard to hear, but go ahead. Okay, what my question is, uh, what what do you believe is the method of attaching equipment or joining material on these ships, since there are no nuts or bolts? That's one question. That's a good one, too. And I said, um, the other one is, uh, what does the government do when they have a new design of an aircraft? The first thing they do along with it. You should know that. You're an aircraft man. And, and if you can't answer that, I'll tell you what it is. Okay. Uh, far, yes, pardon? As far as joining parts together, uh, I have no idea. The descriptions I've gotten from people who say they handled wreckage suggest that it would be very difficult for us to try to, to make anything out of that kind of material. Uh, no way to drill holes in it, to put rivets through it. Uh, Maybe there is uh, some way to chemically bond it. I don't know. But uh, I've never heard anything about how parts were joined together. I, I don't, Don, I don't want to hold any other yeah. colors up, but I'll give you a hint. Yeah, how about uh, optically? I don't know how that would work. It works. 
Good. Uh, the other thing is, uh, the other question I had is on uh, when, if the government builds a, a new aircraft, what happens? They build a similar aircraft on the side of it, right? Uh, frequently. Okay. No, most, most any time when they build a new aircraft. The other, the other item is that uh, why are you investigators checking on checking in on and investigators in the other country? Classify yourself, by the way. Are you an investigator? Uh, not primarily. I'm a writer uh, and reporter. Uh, I've done some investigating, but uh, I say in the case of the book, uh, Stan Friedman did a great bulk of the investigating, uh, and uh, no, I, I would not describe myself that way. All right. Uh, let's see. Line three. Good evening. You're on the air with Don Berliner. Yes, good evening, Arch. Hello. Good evening. I just have two uh, questions, and, I, and it's hard to answer it. Uh, first of all, I think, just very briefly, I think uh, this is from Vegas, Las Vegas, obviously, north Las Vegas. But anyway, I think that the uh, UFOs are real, and I think we have been genetically uh, sort of inbreded, breded, maybe thousands of years ago, and I don't think that we would be so speeded up in our technology. That's my thoughts there. But I want to ask two questions, and I'll let you answer that on the, on the air. Uh, one... We haven't gone back to the moon. They tell us it's too expensive. Now, I've asked this before, but I don't know. What, we have a big rock out there, and I was wondering, number one, uh, are there some bases, maybe, or some type of alien activity on the moon? And number two, for years, people have, who have seen a UFO, supposedly, they have a blackout, you know, naturally, like they see a light, and then they don't, don't remember an hour or two. They're put under hypnosis. Policemen, uh, people that don't have a, maybe emotional instability, and then they, they, they have seen definitely something being examined, you know, and, and, and ugly-looking humanoid type of people. And maybe it's shock, but there's so, so much similarities. I'd like to know what you think of that and the moon question, and uh, let's keep up space research. Thank you. All right, thank you for the call. Okay, as far as the moon is concerned, uh, NASA is having enough trouble getting money for its existing programs. Mm -hmm. uh, they have plans to go back to the moon. They have plans uh, for permanent installations on the moon to do research. But uh, the big problem is uh, the cost right now. And so Congress is not in the mood for funding elaborate scientific efforts. Uh, they killed the, the superconducting super collider the other day. And so uh, I don't think there's anything... Uh, more than uh, economic problems to blame there. As far as other bases on the moon, I am not aware of any evidence of this. Uh, the second question was what? I didn't write it down. Uh, I'm. Let's see. I, I guess it was just a. I heard the question about science. I may have missed the last question myself, Don. I'm sorry. Both getting old. Yeah, we're getting old. That's for sure. Uh, good evening. On the first-time caller line, you're on the air with Don Berliner. Okay, I have two quick questions, and I'll listen on the radio. All right. Um, what, are you the author of the Bermuda Triangle book? I am not. Is it different Berliner, I guess? No, no, no. <laughs> That's Berlitz. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I, I screwed that one up all together. Okay, second question. We're all getting old. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, earlier, Al Bielik was mentioned. And I wondered if you had done any research or writing about the 
Philadelphia experiment. I just understood that you said you, you don't, you're not really a researcher, but I wondered what you knew about that. I've, I've never looked into it because I have enough to do just keeping track of all this UFO stuff. Okay, well, I'm sorry about that other question. Oh, no problem. No problem. Thank you very much for the call. Line one, you're on the air with Don Berliner. Uh, good evening. Hi, Art. How you doing? Fine. It's been a question that I've been saving for you, and now um, I'm going to let it loose. Uh, we live very close to Groom Lake, and it's where you live. It's close to the south boat. And uh, if you look out tonight, when you, when you wrap your show, look out, and there's a ring around the moon, and those clouds are up pretty high. And there's a beam of light from the Lexer. And also, you must also think that the best way to hide something is in plain sight. I have very been mulling this over that the light from that Luxor, that whatever candle power it is, I know it's enormous. A signal, sir? Yes. What's a Luxor? The, lu <laughs> the Luxor is probably the, uh, the largest pyramid uh, outside of Egypt, or maybe the largest period period that's just been built here in Las Vegas. Uh, it is a new hotel casino. It's oh. it's pretty odd, Don, I'll tell you. It's, but I'll tell you, Art, there's a... And there's a light that comes right out of the very top of it, uh, Don, a brilliant light um, that goes right up to the clouds. Can you see that in Pahrump, Art? Uh, yeah, well, barely. Yes, you can see it, depending on the conditions. Right. So, you think they're hiding uh, uh, some something in plain sight? I think, I, I think so. All right, well... Don can obviously not have a comment on that. What do you think, Art? Mine is, who the hell knows? <laughs> yeah. Just like me, but um, come on, it's, who knows, huh? That's it, thank you. Uh, so that echoes your comments, Don. Who knows uh, about these things? Uh, we're very short on time. Good evening. You're on the air with Don Berliner in Las Vegas. Where are you calling from, please? Hello there. No, you're not. They missed it. Line two, you're on the air with Don Berliner. Good evening. Oh. Hello. Oh. Yes, you're on the air, sir. I'm trying to investigate something concerning the uh, uh, caverns in the Grand Canyon that were written about by Smithsonian and the Phoenix Gazette. Had you ever heard of anything with connected to the Egyptians with that? All right, we're way out of time here, Don. Any, any... And way out of our territory. Yeah. So, obviously, then, no comments. I don't know anything about it. All right, uh, Don, it has been a very good interview, um, and I, again, I enjoy your caution on all of these things, and I, I share it. Uh, is there anything you'd like to tell uh, everybody out there? Do you have any con? For example, do you want to be contacted uh, by anybody for any reason? Well, if people want to contact the friends for you, if they're interested in what we're up to and like to participate in any way, uh, they're welcome to write to us uh, at Post Office Box. 277 Mount Rainier, Maryland. That's R A I N I E R, Maryland. 20712. And we'll send you information and go from there. All right. Lots of people left on the lines, uh, but not lots of time. So, Don, I'm going to simply say thank you. Uh, thank you very much for the interview. And I'm not going to have a chance to get your fax number off the air here. Somebody else steps right in, but I will contact you, uh, Don, and get your fax number. I'd be glad to send you this uh, Associated Press story. Okay, if it doesn't run in tomorrow's Washington Post... Uh... It may, because I just heard it on the Associated Press News at 9 o'clock, so... Oh, okay. Uh, my guess is it's going to run all over the place. 
Oh. All right, so if you need it, let me know. I'll give you a call. Don Berliner, thank you. Thank you, Art. There he is, Don Berliner, aviation science writer, and uh, yet another guest uh, uh, from the Bigelow Foundation and Area 2000. Good evening. program was sponsored by the Bigelow Foundation. This is KDWN Las Vegas. The following.